0: This is Mike Rains, a.k.a. Poker and Politics, and this is the debut episode of Blue versus Q. Uh, this is where I'm going to be talking about what, why it's important to vote and be active in politics. And that I know Democrats are cringe and awful and bad and all these terrible things. But, hey, this is the, uh, this is the American political system. This is the world we're living in. And uh, today I'm joined by Billy Ferraro, who is a member of the Brookhaven Democrats. I'm uh, glad that he's here with me. We're recording this past midnight on uh, Wednesday, so we're both night owls. So uh, hello, Billy. Hey, what's going on? Also known as Will
1: Ferraro in the Brookhaven world, but uh, i kind of using my code name here, my nickname, anyone who knows me from back in the day, my family, friends, I go by Billy, I go by Will, so
0: if you want to check me out on social media, just Google Will Ferraro, you'll find stuff. Uh, uh, being a terrible host, I didn't ask exactly how you wanted to be introduced. So no, no, that's, you know, that's
1: totally fine. I think I told you that already. That you can
0: introduce uh, yeah. me. Be uh, oh totally. uh, no, I, I, I want to, I want to complain about me being bad at my job to start. So, <laughs> so uh, t- tell us about like Brookhaven Dems, how you got involved, what it, what the operation is like, like just. What, what, yeah, that's basically the question I would assume, or just giving you the floor to talk about this stuff. So, I have an interesting
1: background. Uh, as you know, I was once a Republican, and that's where I started my um uh, political career. As so, you know, late high school, early college, I was more of a liberal person, but I had views, uh, and, and this is like time frame of that that's like 2001, 2002. So I had views all over the place, like um, I, I was a fairly liberal person, but I didn't understand why. When I got to college, though, I had some influential economics professors who really, you know, made me on to, uh, you know, supply side economics, things like that. So I really got into being a young Republican and this is like during the Bush years and whatnot. So I got my first internship with a very influential local state senator who became our Senate Majority Leader. His name's John Flanagan. No longer he he uh, stepped away two years ago, uh, but he um, you know legendary local politician. So I worked for him. I wound up working for the New York State Assembly. Lived in our state capitol in Albany as a legislative analyst. Um, then came back down around 2010. Um, and around that time, I had left the Republican Party just because I was drifting away from them in terms of ideology. Uh, I didn't leave and overnight become a progressive Democrat or anything, but it was a it was a, um, a gradual change. So, you know, I go, go to uh, public policy school at uh, Stony Brook University, get my public policy degree. I kind of left politics for a while. I was kind of disillusioned. Again, you leave one side. You don't assume the other is going to take you. Um, and it just gradually changed my mind on a lot of things economically. Um, and socially, I was never that conservative, maybe on a couple of things, but never like, I mean, again, I saw the party being the Tea Party, the party of the Tea Party. That was the thing that turned me off initially. Uh, I was more into being a Reagan Republican and more of an economics focused Republican at that time. But again, when I start. Changing my mind on economic policy, specifically as I go to work for the city of New York and work in social services. When you get that real world world experience, it really changes you and how you perceive that ideology. So, anyway, that's the background of how I left the, the party. After 2016, I decided I needed to get back involved in politics and on the Democratic side because I saw what was happening with Trump. And our congressman, Lee Zeldin, who I knew when he first ran for Congress and lost in 08 just as like an up-and-comer and then became a state senator. I I have a PhD in Lee Zeldin. I've, I've known him and known about him for quite a long time before he became this national star. So that leads in how I got involved in local politics because I wrote an article on Patch. I kind of became famous locally as – the person who would use Patch as his propaganda vehicle because they'll publish anything. But if you make it look great and like a legit column and really lead with a great photo and headline, people will, will find it. So if you Google or search on Patch for an article called uh, A History of Bad Men, Lee Zeldin and His Fanatical Pushers – Uh, you'll find the article that got me kickstarted in local democratic politics. That was 2017. I published that. It kind of went viral locally, that and another article about Zeldin and his um, – not his Bannon fundraiser. I did one on that too. It was um, him and Gorka. Uh, He had Gorka appear, Sebastian Gorka, at one of his local events. So I did those two and they got shared like thousands of times just locally and – so that's how I kind of got involved through that and working in the primary, in the Democratic primary in 2018 in the first congressional district. We went after the Dragon of Budapest.
0: That just makes yeah. me laugh.
1: <laughs> that, and that was uh, – that that's Lee Zeldin's district. So anyway, that was how yeah. I kickstarted into that. Through that though, one of the, the pieces of expertise that I tried adding to – the local scene in terms of like, there was just a lot of people in 2018 all over who really wanted to get involved for the first time in democratic politics. And I felt what I could give was the knowledge of how the Republican party built up their, their local machine. And they truly are a machine in Brookhaven and in Suffolk County. Um, and, and you can, there, there's a New York Times article from in the mid 2000s talking about Brookhaven as the last uh, political machine, the last Republican machine in, in the U.S. Not quite true, but that's, that's the reputation it had. Suffolk County was a Republican machine for many years, and Brookhaven was looked upon as like the golden throne of that machine. So I can explain in a little bit what that means to be a political machine and, and what you know, why any party should be, locally should aspire to be that and, and the benefits it has for the races on state and federal levels. But what I try to impart on uh, Democrats locally is the importance of building up through town committees. So the example, we have 10 towns in Suffolk, Brookhaven being the largest, Brookhaven is about the, the size of, of Miami. <laughs> uh, like, I guess like uh, Miami is a suburban and urban uh, county. Um, so we're, we're just, we're ginormous and the, the registration numbers between them and Republican here. I mean, they were a few years ago. We're only about four points for uh, only a four point advantage for the Republicans. Now it's only about a one point advantage. I mean, I, we are closing that gap, but, um, the problem is that like we have six council seats, five or minute are controlled by the Republicans, all three town-wide seats are controlled by the Republicans. They own this town. And the one Democrat we do have on the council, I mean, depending on who's listening to this, I could get in trouble for this. But let's just say that it's very hard to get him on our side on a few, on a few different issues. I'm waiting for this yep. to be controversial, but that's, that's okay. Um, I don't yep. like him. But – it's and it's not just him before him, the one Democrat on the council was kind of the same thing. It's like they use their power to pressure our one Democrats. It's very difficult to get things done. And you know, they were able to to get that power by um you know, by building that machine over time and activating their local base and, and their local registrants. Um and what they do is they've used that power to make sure that seats like Congressional District One held by Lee Zeldin, is continued to be held by Republican year after year. And that's what I try to impart on people is that if you if you let, as Democrats often do across the country, if you allow these local seats to be controlled by Republicans, right up from the fire department. for it, it, Fire departments locally, the volunteer ones that we have, basically all Republicans. These firehouses are controlled by, by Republicans. That's their bench, essentially. That's where they get their... <laughs> they're, they're candidates of the future. We have one former fireman, uh, actually current fire chief, on our Brookhaven Town Council and all throughout our legislature, fire chiefs. This is what they do. They look to their town employees, fire chiefs, ex-cops, detectives, etc. And that's, that's what they get as their bench. Um, if you allow and- – the civic associations to be dominated by republicans again those civic associations will use their influence to help local republicans win office if you allow local legislatures town councils to be controlled by republicans guess what that is your next congressperson that is your next state senator that is your next u.s senator that's possibly your next president
0: Right. Like basically, if you allow, the, if you like stay clear of an area and allow Republicans to get a foothold and gain power there, the machinery of building power starts. And that's like when you were talking about the Brookhaven machine and the Suffolk County machine. Like that's like going back to the old days of Tammany Hall and that kind of stuff, where you actually have people that wield political power that's but not, it's just not like a cult of personality like Donald Trump. It's actually like a system where like if the leader gets deposed or something happens to him, the next guy up takes over and the machine keeps running and they keep winning the elections and they keep holding the, the offices and – they use the fire departments and all those places as ways to get more candidates, to field them in. Like, hey, your local honest cop, why shouldn't he be a town counselor? Why shouldn't he be a state senator? He's a good man for the job, isn't he? And everyone kind of agrees with it. And the next thing you know, he's in. And they just, and they just keep doing that. And, and so they just keep perpetuating their influence and perpetuating their control.
1: Right. I, and, and, I mean, I, I, and this was something that I started in 2018 locally, but no one else was talking about this. I felt that our best bet to do the same thing on the Democratic side was control school boards. So I felt like get on your legislative committees, which no one was doing at the time. Now, all these legislative committees, these meetings are so popular among activists on the left and right and local officials. Let me tell you, when I was on that committee, um, uh, for my local district, like we, rarely had a, a public official show up. Maybe like it would be the same one every time our assemblyman. But now it's it's popular because they realize, oh, wait, we can get board members, we can get people elected to school boards, you know, doing this. I think Republicans have completely turned teachers' unions against them and and, and school board members can concern parents of, of school districts. I think they've completely turned that population against them because of all this critical race theory bullshit that they're you know, the the new red herring. But I mean, that's an example of how you might fight back against that. I also encourage Democrats to get on their, you know, their fire. I I helped a, you know, a Democrat that we do have in the local fire district who's a chief. Uh, We helped her win reelection because a local extremist group, basically this is talking patriots uh, were going after her because she's the longtime girlfriend of our local assembly person who they're also going after with some QAnon idiots. So uh, and that's this year, so it's like oh, it's do never
0: happened to know the name of that QAnon idiot. I'd love to find out who it is. I
1: shouldn't, cause... you know, I shouldn't say QAnon, but it wouldn't surprise me. But he is all on the conspiracy theories. His name is Tom Weirman or Wireman. It's W-I-E-R-M-A-N-N. and he's primarying the Republican choice for Assembly. So that's going to be interesting. It is a blue district, but you never know this year.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, you you have. I mean. It, it, there's a race to just be the craziest person in uh, these in these fields. and uh, uh, one of the things I talked about uh, in my the daily the regular weekly podcast was there's a guy, uh, Jim Marchand in Nevada who literally said that everyone in Nevada who's been elected over the past like decade or so was put there by George Soros in the Deep state. And that basically if a Democrat wins an election when he's secretary of state of Nevada, he won't certify it. He just will refuse to acknowledge that they won. I mean, and when, when he, I started
1: publishing my patch articles, I'd get comments under them, say, uh, people alleging that I'm paid by George Soros. And I would reply and say, I fucking wish. Tell him to
0: cut me a check. I, George Soros, if you were listening, cut me a check and I will do your bidding. Oh, that that reminds me. Oh my God, there was uh, there's this unbelievably awesome, and by that I mean terrible, uh, video series called uh, Fall Cabal" by a crazy Dutch lady, and in one of the videos, um, they have these anti protesters, and she takes it like them being serious, that they're because they're being filmed, so they start sarcastically chanting Soros Soros, where's our money? And she's saying, these Antifa protesters have not been paid, and they're lashing out at their paymaster, George Soros. And it's like, no, it's a joke, because that's what you people say about everyone who's a part of the left, is that they're funded by Soros. And I... uh, it took uh, like uh, two thousand mules. I don't know if you've had much uh, dealings with that movie, but uh, that movie, which is an absolute dog shit, and I've been I've been on Twitter talking about it for forever now. But uh, it takes over an hour. But they finally do bring they do name drop George Soros finally in that film because he, he's always got to be there. He's always got to be the bad guy. Meanwhile, you've got Peter Thiel trying to buy uh, Senate seats in iowa in ohio and in arizona and you have the Koch brothers the mercers you have so many republican sugar daddies out there trying to buy influence in congress but oh that left oh george soros you gotta be w- looking out for what he's doing to america it's like i wish that i wish that there was a way to demonize right-wing sugar daddies the way soros gets demonized because it's just it's <laughs> hilarious. They're it's such projection on their part to complain about these things. Well,
1: you know where I learned of uh, 2,000 Mules from? Um, so I, I watch on YouTube the Michael Franzese uh, show or whatever. He's a former mob captain or, w- or what have you. And it's basically mob shoot interviews. Basically pro wrestling does shoot YouTube interviews. And uh, the gangster rap world, the mafia world – And the bodybuilding world now do their versions of shoot interviews. Like this is the funniest thing ever. So I was all into the show because it's all mafia stories from a guy who really did it. But of course he ran out of stories and realized, you know what? A lot of my listeners are right-wing people. Let me just go to interviewing fucking schmucks like Giuliani who's anti – I mean he killed the mob. Like why are you interviewing him? And, um, And what's his face who did 2,000 Mules? So I'm like, all right, maybe I'll just watch this less. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I want oh. to go back to something you said about um, you know the impact of local politics on on what goes on nationally. There's no better example of that than redistricting. I mean, how it's not enough to yeah. win the House of Reps. And think that we can ignore local seats and then say, well, as long as we win in 2010, 2020, 2030, we'll control at that 10 year mark redistricting. Not so because, okay, you have a a majority delegation in one particular state and they come up with a map and you'll have the governorship and they'll come up with a map. But guess what? The state legislature that you ignored, which is still Republican, will veto the map and the courts, which you also ignored uh, those elections and or uh, the local legislative elections that produce the people who appoint those judges have struck down your maps. Hell, New York State, we actually have a supermajority majority controlled uh, assembly and Senate. And we still got one Republican guy drawing our maps. How did that happen? Well, partly Andrew Cuomo's fault because there's a, a civil war going on right now between Democrats or Cuomo Democrats, our former governor and basically everyone else. So Cuomo appointed judges, uh, sided with Republicans on their lawsuit against the redistricting map, which would have given Democrats like a 20 to 3 or 23 to 3 advantage, like something crazy, Um, and vetoed that. The, the, uh, The lawsuit was challenged in a specific county because they knew a specific Republican judge was there. So that judge, a Republican judge, got to appoint one map master to create all the maps himself. So we went through the trouble of getting supermajority Dems in the Senate and Assembly here. The redistricting maps basically came down to one guy appointed by a Republican judge. And they're okay maps, but they are nothing like what we would have and should have had.
0: So that's local politics. Right. You have to you, – you, that's the thing. You have to contest every election. You have to do everything you can to try to get every crumb of power you can because, as you just said, literally one Republican-appointed judge in one district was able to do this amount of damage to what was – I mean, let's call a spade a spade here, going to be an aggressive Democrat gerrymander, which is something we have to do in politics these days because I know Florida, I I was reading like a bunch of Republican shitheads were like, oh, the Florida redistrict is so good. We're going to win the House back because DeSantis like just fucking ruined it for the Democrats and it's it's awesome. And that's the kind of uh, shit that, People don't really like notice or pay attention to when it's like, well, if we had been able to like win a seat, win win a house of the Florida legislature, you could have had a chance of stopping that. If we could have won the governorship of Florida in that wave election where everyone thought – no one thought the Sanders was going to win that election. And now – I'm having people tell me that DeSantis is my next president. And it's like, do you remember what was actually happening in 20? I mean, well, yeah, 2018. That was when he was he was supposed to lose. I mean, he was down in the polls all the whole way. And then, well, oh, it's Florida. He comes back and he wins. And now he's Trump Jr. He's the rising star of the Republican Party. It's amazing. And it's just that kind of thing where <sighs> – When you win governorships, you have all that power, but also you take away the bench of the other team. If DeSantis wasn't the governor of Florida, like who would be their rising star if Trump were to keel over tomorrow or to actually get convicted of a crime and not be allowed to run anymore? Like they have to trot out Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or a, a guy that Trump dunked on aggressively in the last, in 2016. So it's like, it's so important to win races, not just for the sake of that it's good and you wield power. It actually blunts the other side's ability to promote people. It, like what you said about, uh, like, running that cop and then he becomes a a state Senator and then he becomes a member of Congress. Now he's a Senator. Now he's a president. And it's like at any point in time, you could have stopped that local cop if you'd run a good candidate against him. But, Oh, who cares about that state uh, Senate seat? Oh, who cares about that congressional seat? Oh, who cares about him being the governor or whatever. And it's like, no, it it matters. You've got to, you got to have pushback the whole way because you never know who's going to be the big deal. I remember in 2004, some Republican, after W1 re-election, they were just like, well, we just kicked the Democrats' asses and we dominated them, and all the Democrats got out of 2004 was this guy named Barack Obama. <laughs> Sucks to suck for them. And it's like... <laughs>
1: Well, and right. That, I mean, that, that just goes to show. And, and first of all, anyone who's been involved in politics locally, nationally, what have you, for any extended amount of time knows that there is no such thing as putting the other party out of business. No matter what kind of super majorities, majorities you build up. Obama is a great example because, you know, for it looked like the Republicans were just going to, you know, control everything for a long time. Two years later, they lose the House and the Senate. And then two years after that, there's a supermajority in Barack Hussein Obama, the, you know, the person that thought could never be elected and was this dangerous progressive liberal is now the president. And it really looked like from the perspective of Democrats at the time that, oh, we're, we're going to control shit from now on. Two years later, Republicans have a record-breaking wave election, like 55 seats or something crazy like that swung. And they're thinking, well, we're definitely beating Obama in two years. Well, no, you still lose to Obama. But then in 2014, they get the Senate back. And then 2016 happens. You think Hillary's a shoe in. Well, no, sorry, Donald Trump is winning. Two years later and thereafter, Trump consistently every year locally and uh, in the midterms and then in his his reelection campaign, uh, Republicans consistently lost all over the board when Trump was at the top of the ballot or was the person that was the topic of the election, which he always was. So, and then you look at last year's local elections, uh, at least, I mean, it varied state to state, but I can tell you in our county, it was a fucking disaster, a fucking disaster for Democrats. So Democrats have the tendency, I think, to get down on themselves about these things and Republicans... Seem to roll along, Uh, but I want to let Democrats know, especially people who are newer to politics, like one, two, three years in that nothing is permanent. Everything can be reversed. Every loss can be reversed and so can every win, which is why you have to stay involved.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, One of my favorite things is to talk about, um, I can never remember his name. His name is O'Connell, I believe. But one of JFK's um, stat, one of his assistants, he wrote a book and the title of the book is No Final Victories. And that's the nature of politics. There's never going to be a moment where the other side is totally vanquished and that you've achieved all your goals and you have no more goals to achieve. Like, no matter where you got America to at a a moment where like, imagine you had like a list of like 15 things you wanted enacted. And over the course of like 30 years, you achieved it. You got all 15 things done. Guess what? When that was over, you're probably going to come up with 15 more things. It, it never stops. Like the process just continues on and on and on. And I think that's something that's incredibly frustrating to a lot of people is understanding that politics is a grind. It's not this, I mean, you want this instant gratification, you want the big payoff, you want something to happen, but that's never how it works out. I mean, it's, it's always going to be this sort of thing where, uh, the other side's going to throw as much sand in the gears as they can to try to stop you from getting what you want. You're going to, you're going to have to fight with your own caucus and do all these things. Cause I mean, everyone was like, well, Trump's going to come in. He's going to repair Obamacare. He's going to do, he's going to build the wall. He's going to do all this stuff. And, Really, all Trump did legislatively in his time of office was get that massive tax cut through, and any Republican can pass a tax cut. I mean, that's the fucking easiest bit of legislation in the history of the world. Who doesn't like cutting taxes? Even Democrats can pass a tax cut. Everyone can. Right? Exactly. It's, the, it's like it's the easiest thing in the world. Just hey, we're cutting everyone's taxes, and it's like oh, cool, done. I mean, <laughs> so well, what, one of the
1: problems is that, and the, and this is why I think we're in this age of. um like fleeting majorities, which if you look at the history of the U S political history, at least from the 20th century on that, yes, we do have this period of stability that people who are, you know, both boomers and older millennials like us or Gen X folks, uh, experienced from like the 1950s to the 1990s where majorities didn't flip often. Um, in fact, they probably only flipped a couple of times in that period. Um, Presidents often got reelected. But if you go back prior to that, you look from like the 1910s to 1940s, really up until like actually the late 1930s when FDR gets in. And and even then they were in the early 50s, uh, like a lot of back and forth. There, there was constant turmoil, political turmoil, constant overturning of, of majorities. So like this is not unprecedented, and in fact, it's more the norm than not. So really what we're doing is just entering back into what this country was always used to anyway uh, prior to World War II. But I, yeah. I think one of the reasons why now in the age of cable news and the Internet and people being in their silos is that – Opposition messaging is literally the easiest thing to do in the world, especially like you go back to that Obama time when we had super majorities in the Senate and a Democratic president. I mean, all you have to do is blame everything bad or manufacture bad things on the people in power. It is the easiest thing in the world to do to use outrage politics on the left and the right. When Trump was in power, he was a gift to the Democratic Party. I'm going to say it right now. Not so much from the perspective of the Supreme Court nominations. And that's really why I think 2016, like, there was no beating Trump. We didn't beat Trump in 2020. We had one chance to defeat Trumpism, and that was 2016. Once he won that, Trumpism became permanent. So we forever lost to him, despite whatever victories we had in the interim, because what he was looking to achieve was achieved. They got a Supreme Court completely rigged in their favor, and Trumpism will outlast his short term. He was a terrible politician, but you know he inspired a movement that was ready to be inspired, quite frankly. And now it's there to stay until they are permanently put out or, or the, the Republicans being put in such dire straits that they have no choice but to rebuild from the ground up without minding that they lose a big chunk of their base. But quite frankly, they're not at that point yet. When they lose, they just lose by just enough to you know come back with the same old shit. Right. They, they figured they'll figured get him next time because it was close. And they're like, right. hey, they need to bottom out and rebuild. That's really what they need to do, which is kind of what they did in 08, where they were like, all right, let's rebuild from this like George Bush, Ronald Reagan party. And they they had an opportunity to rebuild and rebrand as the party of the nutjobs. And what yeah, we need elegant. to do is beat the nutjobs so bad that the more reasonable Republicans, you know, back when they just wanted to bankrupt government. Remember those days? <laughs> Oh, those oh, folks yeah. in, uh, yeah, it, you know, they can it, maybe have a chance to go. Okay, now we can step away from the Trump shit. Now we're not worried about primaries. Now you know what? Let's rebrand.
0: Yeah, the Grover Northquist and gr- drowning government in a bathtub. Yeah, those, yes. those heady days. Those liberal uh, well, Republicans. Yeah, like well, the one one other little trivia thing I was going to bring up was that uh, Clinton W and Obama—that was the first time in American history that we had uh, three term three presidents uh, serve eight years in a row uh, since Madison, since Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. So that was a massive anomaly that we just had uh, eight years back to back to back for three presidents because. In American history, a lot of our presidents just died in office or didn't win re-election, and that's just kind of the way it always was. And then suddenly we had this uh, weird amount of stability from 1992 until 2016, and then Trump broke the cycle by being a one, being the first one-termer since Pappy Bush, and The other thing I was gonna bring uh mention was that what you said, it's like if Hillary had beaten Trump and she had like beat him decisively, that might have been able to break the fever dream of the Republican Party because it took a lot for the Democrats to go from what they were under like JFK and Lyndon Johnson to what Bill Clinton was, but that was because Republicans controlled the White House for 20 of 24 years before Clinton won. You had Jimmy Carter's four-year term in there, but that was it. And he got swept away by Reagan. And then it was 12 more years of Republican rule after that. So in a way, like Washington had become hardwired to accept that a Republican was supposed to be president because that was the way it was for basically two decades. And it looked like... Uh, that was what was going to happen and then it didn't and now Republicans are like oh we, we don't have to rebrand we don't have to fix things we can just trot out Trump in 2024 and he lost I mean you would think that the party would think to themselves, "Our guy lost by eight million votes. This is a bad thing overall." But they're looking at it from the point of view of eh, a couple votes in a couple votes in Pennsylvania, a couple of votes in Wisconsin, a couple of votes in Arizona. Boom! We get back in. We got this. And. Like, they're not seeing this as a problem. They're not seeing this as, like a, as a thing that we need to fix this about ourselves. We're fine. We're good. We can, we can win a rematch between Trump and Biden. It's a good it's, – it's okay. We don't have to chart a new direction. We don't have to change anything. And that's – it's really unfortunate that that the insane party remains the insane party and sees no reason to stop being the insane party.
1: Right. And, and, you know, comparing the Republican years of Reagan, not just Reagan's actual term, but they were the party of Reagan for another couple of decades after that. I mean, every Republican primary was shaped by who's going to grab the mantle from Reagan every I mean, from 2008, 2012. Uh, nineteen ninety six. Like every debate was, well, you know, who's more like Reagan? Reagan, Reagan, Reagan. Now it's good. You are going to see that with Trump. Well, I, you know, I am a Trump. I was not a never Trumper. Trump will now dominate their primaries, and who can be the closest to Trump without being like unreliable like Trump? But the difference, I think, and why Reagan was so much more successful for incumbent Republicans versus. Trump, which has produced this outrage machine that will be good for getting Democrats out of office, but not keeping it uh, for very long. And this is, again, also a problem for Democrats, too, is that one side figured out opposition messaging very well in grievance politics. But the, the beauty of what Reagan was able to accomplish for his side was that. They figured out how to deliver in such a way that they can run on what they delivered. Not just like, oh man, I really had to dig up some achievements of mine and sell people on why it was big. They hardwired the American voter to accept that I will judge my incumbents based on where my tax dollars are going. And they were able to give tax cuts and run on tax cuts and crime rates all over. Oh, crime is down. Tax cuts are are achieved we get a re-election, And they were able to run on that boilerplate of, we don't need a candidate with the charisma of Reagan. We just need someone to fit, fit the image and then run on that Reagan formula of tax cuts, crime, and you know sunny days in America. And it was successful for incumbents. It is so hard to figure out a formula for either party to run on achievements in such a way that people vote because they're afraid of what they're going to lose if they don't reelect their side this is what biden needs to figure out and i think this is if i'm being critical here the failure so far of the biden administration is that and and it's not all him i mean let's be realistic we have senators in arizona and in west virginia who are single-handedly stopping progress uh it really has become uh the joe manchin and kirsten cinema show and that's unfortunate let's be honest democrats need 52 senate seats to have 50. That's that's the way it is right now. And, um, you know, if, if if Maine Democrats had been successful kicking out Susan Collins, we wouldn't have this problem right now. Um, oh,
0: if the if the guy from New, North Carolina could have kept his dick in his pants. Uh, we that's had it. that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, and not for I mean, Georgia is a you look at Georgia for how to be. Uh, you know, successful in, in building your party because they, you know, they seem to be the only local party that can like withstand rough years or overperform in, in other years. But I, I'll I'll say though, I think for Democrats, like you could use Obama as an example and, and actually 2018 would be a great example, even though Obama was out of office. One of the big reasons why Dems were successful in 2018 is because every Republican was running on taking away ACA, Obamacare. And it proved to be the number one polling issue for Democrats because even in red states in swing districts um, where it was no longer being called Obamacare and being called ACA, like people understood, okay, even Republican voters like, oh, I rely on this. Like, I I can't have this taken away. It wasn't a problem in 2010 because Republicans could run against Obamacare, but it hadn't been instituted yet until 2014. So. They could go out there and say this is some socialist program that's going to bankrupt the country. Totally different eight years later
0: when it's been instituted and people are surviving off this. Oh, yeah, that's the that's their that's always the fear they have about these programs is that once the public gets something, they're not going to give it back, and that's that's the why it's like so important to get the get the program in and make it work and make it successful so that people see the benefit of it. So new problems uh, Biden has right now is that the one thing he was able to accomplish, which
1: is infrastructure spending largely in, in many States, if not most that money has not been spent yet. Um, and there is the question over you know how much of it actually goes to its purpose i mean that's a any big spending bill you kind of build that in into the equation that a lot of that money will be lost i hate to say that but you that's not an error that's a feature of the system uh it's just how much like covid spending I think a lot of the, the money that was supposed to go to small businesses, a, way too much of it was wasted and went and went towards things that it shouldn't have in terms of like fraudulent people. Um, that's a problem, um, you know, and that's something we can actually be critical of. And that's not a criticism of Biden. I mean, that was going on under Trump as well. Um, but the other problem Biden has is that he didn't he should have been using his, his executive order to whatever extent possible, my opinion on student loans, to do something tangible for people that if it were to be taken away, they could realistically envision how it would hurt them. So I think there are millions of Americans who could benefit from complete uh, cancellation of their loans that would change their lives because these are millennials, people with homes, families now, kids, I'm one of them and that's something that would change their lives and if those voters were to see republicans campaigning on you know no we have to undo that no we have to stop that now you're now you have something where you can say look i we were elected as democrats and we changed your lives even if it angers other voters you need a large block of people to be able to say my 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 life changed for the better it's not enough to say that voting democrats is a safety gauge against Republicans. It is, and that is a good reason to vote, but it's not something that's going to save a majority. So I think what Biden has to figure out is uh, uh, accomplish something, not micro accomplishments, but uh, accomplish something large enough to where we local Dems could go around saying, look, this is our brand. It's hard for us to campaign on local accomplishments when you're ultimately going to be judged on the branding of, Biden and the fact that in every gas station we see the fucking sticker. I did that with you know, (laughs) we see that around here. We need to have our own stickers where it's like, you know, basically like sorry that like the president doesn't control gas prices, but there has to be something done. Like I, I think Biden desperately needs to have a bill cracking down on um, these gas companies that are uh, that are um, price gouging. You know, that's, that's a huge thing right now. Like go, go on about like there's graphics that can be shared and information shared on how the price per barrel of oil is no different now than it was. I don't know if it was 2013, 2014, but the price is like twice as much as it was at the pump now as it, as it was then. Like, there, there is there are countless examples to how price gouging is a big problem right now with gas prices, and that argument is just not being made. There's a populist argument. There's a there's a, a you know there, there's a way for us to be populist while in power against other powerful folks like gas companies that we're just
0: not doing it, and
1: I don't know why.
0: <laughs> Well, uh, that is kind of like the, the 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 high end, like the party level sort of uh, discussion about uh, like where we are in America right now, and right. all that. Well, we're gonna stuff. have to
1: answer for that locally in these local elections. Oh. That is that is something that you know voters don't know the difference between what happens locally and nationally. Often in these midterm elections. So our, um, you know, our state assembly people and then next year our local politicians, our local
0: Dems, like they're going to have to answer about gas prices. Oh, absolutely. But uh, what I was going to say is uh, so like that is that level on like the what I would say on like the personal level, on the local level, like if someone decided that they were going to get into uh, becoming politically engaged and politically active, what would you say would be the most productive use of their time and energy? What should they be trying to do to like kind of establish themselves as someone who try, who wants to try to make a difference affecting um, change in, in politics? The number one thing, make sure
1: that you're voting every year. and I know that we're assuming that people are doing that, but there are people who consider themselves active who might vote even in every midterm, who actually are not voting in their local elections? So that's the first thing. Get to be a, an active voter. The second thing you should do, uh, I know a lot of people would say, join your local Democratic committee, and you definitely should. That might be the next step. But I would say find something, because you can't just force people to do things they're not interested in. Like, I, I wish everyone was interested in town politics the way I am, but being realistic, I think what people really need to do is just, Find something that's interesting about what's going on, with some some form of volunteering that would interest you, even if it's just getting involved in your civic, if you like that. If you'd rather be involved with activist groups and the actual party committee, that's okay. I wish you'd do both. But if, if we can only have you doing one as opposed to nothing, I'll take you doing the one. But any kind of action or activity that um, – that leads to you helping spread the word about our party and our candidates or our issues in any way, shape or form, do that. But there has to be something actionable. I would say like don't just go to protests and stand there and hold signs. I mean I'm notoriously kind of like down on (laughs) the concept of protesting because I feel like too many times we don't then take that energy and do it uh, and, and apply it. In other ways, but even if you're going to do that, that's great. I mean, I've done the protesting myself, but I'm not like, I'm not good at it. That's not my thing, right? It's not my forte, but at the very least get involved with candidates you like. If you don't like any of the candidates, like get involved in groups that have influence over who candidates are, that being your committee, go to your local town or county and ask how you can get involved with the party committee, Google, whatever your town is, your county, your city, your Whatever your district is referred to, Google the local Democratic Party. Check it out. Check out the email. Maybe you've emailed them and they haven't gotten back to you. That happens. There's a lot of fucking old people who are involved in this shit who are really bad at at social media. If you can't do that, look up what the local campaigns are for legislature or aldermen or whatever, city council, local legislature campaigns. Get involved in whatever the local campaigns are. Who's running for Congress? Just Google it. Google your district. If you don't know what your district is, uh, look it up or call your board of elections and ask. Give them your address and say, "What is my congressional district?" Then Google who's running in my my uh, election district, uh, my congressional district, and contact their campaign. You, someone will get back to you. Get involved, um, and and learn through that who the local players are, who's you know who, who your local committee person is. I can give the example of Brookhaven. Basically, to be a committee member, uh, you would, you know, show interest, uh, say that you want to be a committee member. You would be assigned what's called an election district, which is just a single voting precinct, and you would collect uh, petitions for yourself from local registered Democrats. It's like five percent here. It's about five percent of the total. A uh, number of registered Democrats or so whatever that number is, you just need 5% of, of those registered Democrats assigned for you. It usually comes out to be like in our local area, like, you know, anywhere from 10 to 15 signatures. And then you're, you're in, you're a local committee person. Now you get to vote on party leadership. I always say when people locally complain about our party leadership, and I have my complaints too, I think we're way too fucking old. Um, and we're way too not with the times, and I'll say that about my own committee. And we're trying to change that, but I'm I'm going to be our next district leader. I picked our last district leader. Uh, um, you know, I run our local club. Like, I have skin in the game. I ran for for uh, town supervisor uh, in a town of millions of people where we have almost a million registered voters uh, alone. Um, You know, I ran and and carried the banner and I had a record number of local volunteers and I broke the record for small individual donations against a behemoth of a candidate who's been around for like decades. So like I did my part to try to inspire folks, even though I lost that election, that wasn't the point I knew I'd lose. But I did it so I can inspire people, build up an email list, get volunteers and then put that back into the local committee. I did that. We need more people doing things like that. We need – Uh, folks being involved on multiple levels of politics. You don't have to overwhelm yourself or do too much. Start with something simple. If all you can do is once per year spend a day knocking doors or making phone calls for your local candidate, then do that. Because we have hundreds of people who like to follow our pages on Facebook and do other things that out of them, like out of those hundreds, a large percentage are not doing anything. So if you could do like one day worth of work or one week worth of work every year and everyone was doing that, it would have enormous positive consequences for our party.
0: Yep. And, and of course voting. Just after <laughs> you knock on well, the that. was voters, the number one thing. Yeah. I
1: mean, yeah, like so me. being a, my, my philosophy in organizing locally is that, you know, especially for like our third, what's called our third district M. So like, you know, my sphere of influence is what I've named Central Brookhaven. So it's like our third out of our six council districts, it's our third district, then pieces of the first, pieces of the second, pieces of the fourth. But um, my motto is we are looking to make inactive voters active voters. Well, we, I should say, we are looking to make uh, unregistered voters registered Democrats. We are looking to make registered inactive voters to be active. We are looking to make active voters volunteers, and we're making looking to make volunteers uh, candidates and leaders, and it's, that is the stepping stone, and that is that that is literally the process you take. Uh, I'm trying to make sure that in my local party we have as many people screening for local office as possible, so that we have a, you know wide selection of candidates. I want us to be more diverse. I want us to have more women involved. 60% of our local registered uh, voters in Brookhaven uh, – I'm sorry, registered Democrats, actually over 60% are women. Uh, we don't have enough people of color involved, to be honest. Uh, I want – especially if there's not the pressures of uh, – like I, I think – any type of candidate can be electable, but you always have to deal with these older white Democrats telling you that, oh, you know, this person is not electable. and They happen to be a woman or a person of color, and that's frustrating. But you know what? There are other seats where some of us get our pick of who gets to run. We don't have to hear that bullshit. And anytime I have it, like I can say I, I pretty much decide who the candidate is in our third district – You know, in 2019, I chose as my running maintenance district a a woman named Talat Hamdani, who was the first Muslim American to run for uh, town office. And, you know, while she lost because it's a heavy red district, she actually, and we have the numbers to back this up, she increased uh, Muslim turnout by over 20%. And that's a big deal because we have a very big and growing Muslim community here. Uh, I'm helping out a Senate uh, candidate who is also a young Pakistani American uh, and he's inspiring people to get involved too. Like, you know, always, if you're going to recruit candidates for office, find something, especially if you have your pick, you don't have to deal with these bullshit arguments about who should run, who shouldn't run. Um, you know, pick folks who are different, pick folks who will inspire one segment of the local population more than others. Like pick someone who can energize, some segment, any segment of the voting population that was previously inactive. So you got to be strategic. Don't just run people who try out there and lose. You don't care who they are. You don't care what effort level they have. Pick people who will give effort, pick people who will, uh, you know, inspire new segments of voters in the uncompetitive seats. And in the competitive seats, we need to, you know, we need to be better about having more women run. We need to be better about more people of color running to show that we are a party of inclusivity. And I question whether or not we do that on a regular enough basis, at least in the suburban districts. I think there's still this argument in suburban democratic parties over like, are we the party of like white men and white women? Are we the party of conservative Democrats? I hate that whole argument because I think there's room for everybody. Um, I don't like this whole progressives versus liberal Democrats thing. Like, Why can't we run progressives in competitive seats and why can't we have a Democrat who's a little bit more conservative? I feel like if they're credible in that they put in the work in their community, whether they're more to the left or to the center, then, and and if they're hardworking as a candidate, then they should be a candidate. That's my philosophy.
0: Yeah. So I, that was really like kind of like what I was really looking for that just I that was kind of the thing we're just listening to you. I was like, I I, now I want to run through a brick wall. I want to knock on some doors. I want to talk to some people. I want to be more active. I just don't want to be a podcasting schmuck that bitches and moans about QAnon all day. So like, that's the kind of, (laughs) I came on here
1: to convert you, Mike.
0: Oh, oh yes. That, that, and, and, and convert and converted. I have been, so, um, I'm going to wrap this up. So I just wanted to say, um, lastly, of course, uh, how do you feel about the Rangers going into next year? Because I mean, uh, Tampa Bay is fucking Tampa Bay. Those goddamn pieces of shit. But uh, everyone that I was listening to was saying, "Oh, the Rangers are a year ahead of schedule and all that." Happy, happy horse hockey. Um, but like, was this year gravy, or was it agonizing that it didn't it didn't work out properly?
1: I mean, both because it was gravy. And then instead of just getting like our asses kicked in the third round, we actually had a two nothing series lead. So it's like, I'd rather have just like got our asses kicked and never had hope going in. It, and similar to when we went to the finals in 2014 against the Kings, going into the finals and was like, whatever, happy to be here. But then it's like, oh, we blew leads in three out of four games. Oh shit, third period leads. Oh my God. Like, we could have actually won. And I truly feel, even though they lost tonight, Tampa did, I truly feel like the winner of the Eastern Conference was going to be Colorado simply on goaltending um, I, I, Igor Shosturkin, in my opinion, he's the best goalie in the world. He is – and us Ranger fans who have been following him since he was in the KHL, let me tell you, he is god-tier every level that he's played at. And there was no question he'd be god-tier when he came to the NHL. Among us hardcore fans – Everyone who says, oh, he's a shock. He came out of nowhere. No, the fuck he did not. We knew he was going to do this. You all are just finding out now. So he is great. He's going to continue to be great. He just put together a season that rivals some of Dominic Koschek's best seasons statistically. Um, So I I think with him and net against Colorado, if that other goalie is letting up three to four goals a game, you're done. Uh, Tampa Bay's defense just shut us down. I didn't even think Vasilevsky was particularly impressive. But that defense just did not allow quality shots five-on-five on, five on that net. They simply didn't.
0: How do I feel yeah, about Vasilevsky the Vasilevsky had a shit first period tonight. That's why they were down 3-1. So. Yeah, and
1: yeah, he rebounded well after that. But, again, if he just let up, like, one less goal, like, they would have won. But I, I do think they'll bounce back and win. If not, then whatever. But how do I feel about the Rangers? I feel great. I think that we were, for a long time now, a few years, expected to turn into one of the best teams in the league. And I think the bottom line for the Rangers is we have the guy who's going to win the Vezina Trophy as, as best uh, goaltender. We have reigning Norris Trophy winner and, in my opinion, a guy who will consi- consistently be one of the top three defensemen in the league every year in Adam Fox. We have a guy, Mika Zvanijad, who's arguably a top 10 to top 15 center in the league. We have a 50-goal scoring wing in Kreider. We have... Young guys like Kako and Lafreniere and Heedle who are rising stars. And we also have one of the top five offensive players in the game total. And you could double-check that with the stats the last three years. He's up there. I think he's one of the top three to five uh, points-per-game players in Artemi Panarin. So we have elite pieces, was, which is what the team was missing in prior in prior successful years where we had a lot of grinders and the best goalie in the league. But that's all we had. Now we have the best goalie and we have superstars. And I think we have good depth. It's just a matter of being wise with the cap and making sure to keep that that depth around. We have a question over who's going to be the number two center next year. If we can solve that issue and not have a liability as our number two center, I think next year we'll be competitive again, and we'll be right back in the final four.
0: Yeah. So uh, optimism about political activism and the Rangers. So all that in a bag of chips. More so um, about the
1: Rangers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: The midterms, questionable. The Rangers, not questionable. So So, uh, thanks, Billy, for uh, spending time here. And uh, we will uh, hopefully I'll be able to do this every week with someone talking about uh, the midterms, talking about politics in general, talking about political activism. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch you all later. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.